Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, Today we are picking up our coverage of Charles Chapin. And heads up, in case you don't recall from the first one, this two-part episode involves not only murder, but also discussion of suicide and a lot of mental instability. So uh, know that going in. We are, as I said, picking up with the life of Charles Chapin. And we are jumping right back into Chapin's story. So if you missed part one, we highly suggest you go back and start there or this will have no context whatsoever. (laughs) You will just spontaneously be working with Joseph Pulitzer out of nowhere. (laughs) Uh, Where we left off, Chapin, after making a name for himself in the St. Louis news business, had been summoned to New York by Joseph Pulitzer in a telegram that conveyed a sense of urgency to the whole situation. This was March of 1898. Pulitzer had asked Charles Chapin to get on a train that very night, if at all possible. What Chapin would learn when he got there was that the managing editor of the New York World, Ernest Chamberlain, had prematurely run a special edition of the paper reporting in bold headlines that war had been declared. This is in the wake of the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, and most journalists saw the Spanish-American War as inevitable, but it had not actually begun yet. The sinking of the Maine and the impending conflict had been big news all over the U.S. Chapin had been working on his paper's coverage of it when Pulitzer telegrammed, but Chamberlain had really jumped the gun here. He had been working round the clock and had run himself into the ground, he he was really not well at this point. He died of pneumonia soon after this errant special edition had gone to press. But Pulitzer had another problem in addition to that empty editor's chair. He was also in the midst of his rivalry with William Randolph Hearst, who had moved into the New York journalism scene with a lot of money and a desire to dominate Park Row. And Pulitzer felt like the only person who could keep Hearst's papers in check was Charles Chapin. To make this daunting task worthwhile, Chapin was offered a salary of $100 a week. Foster Coates was hired as managing editor, and Chapin was the city editor in charge of the evening editions. 
As the rivalry between Hearst and Pulitzer ramped up, the news business became a frantic, constant stream of extra additions, round-the-clock staff, stealing stories from each other, and running so many papers that readers just could not keep up. Sometimes a new edition was hitting the street almost hourly if there was a big story developing. Pulitzer developed an elaborate code for his employees, giving different editions code names and the editors being nicknamed as well so that any eavesdroppers wouldn't be able to understand what they were hearing. No telegraph operators could blab any secrets they heard either. Yeah, Pulitzer's code name was Andes in all of this, and Chapin was Pinch. Chapin, though, made the exact same mistake that Ernest Chamberlain had. He was working from 4 a.m. until well into the night as the Spanish-American War finally did begin and play out. And when that conflict ended, Chapin was a wreck. He had pneumonia and he was put on bed rest, but Chapin did recover and he returned to work. As an editor at the New York World, Chapin became a legend of journalism. By all accounts, he was powerful, terrifying, and really good at his job. Irvin S. Cobb, one of the writers who worked for Chapin, once wrote of him, quote, Chapin walked alone, a tremendously competent, sometimes an almost inspired tyrant. And then even more descriptive, quote, in him was combined something of Caligula, something of Don Juan, a touch of the Barnum, a dash of Narcissus, a spicing of Machiavelli. Similarly, Stanley Walker, who was city editor of the Herald Tribune, wrote, quote, even his laugh, usually directed at something sacred, is part sneer. His terrible curses cause flowers to wither as grass died under the hoofbeats of the horse of Attila the Hun. A chilly, monstrous figure, sleepless, nerveless, and facing with ribald mockery the certain hell which awaits him. But there were journalists who knew this reputation and still desperately wanted to work with him. Despite his brash manner, Chapin was so well-respected that he was able to lure some of the best journalists away from Hearst's papers. To be clear, the people who worked for Chapin did not like him, but they got a certain degree of clout from working for him despite the stress of the world's culture and Chapin's unrelenting expectations. He was known to fire people with no warning, sometimes for reasons that would be an HR fiasco today. On occasion, these were firings he had been ordered to make due to budget cuts, although Joseph Pulitzer later told him he could push back when he got those kinds of directives. He often did. Chapin's approach to running a newsroom was different than other papers. He is sometimes credited for being the first editor to assign reporters to specific beats covering a regular territory or subject matter. And he initially did this by just drawing a grid on a map of the city and giving each block of the grid to a reporter. And then those reporters were held responsible for making sure anything that happened in their section of grid that was newsworthy got covered. But here's what was really unusual. Those reporters didn't usually write the stories. They would call into the newsroom with details they had gathered, and then an assigned writer would assemble that information into a story. Those positions came to be called rewriters. Chapin had embraced the telephone. He had telephones installed in the newsroom to speed up the delivery of information to the news desks. Reporters were to call in regularly with information as part of their daily routine. And because of his telephone relay system, the evening paper became more and more profitable as it outpaced competitors on scoops. People also started calling in with tips, which further expanded Chapin's lead over other papers when it came to getting stories out first. In 1902, Junior, as the evening paper was called, was making a $200,000 profit. Yeah, he, the newsroom always had a writer just, hang in and ready in case anything came in at any hour of the day or night. Charles Chapin, though, was not only a boss who barked orders. He was perfectly happy to take interviews or reports and write up those stories himself quickly and with a style that consistently engaged readers. 
He was so good in his role as city editor that Pulitzer had been reluctant to promote him and lose out on that hands-on approach. And this led to some friction at times because Chapin got passed over for promotions that went to lesser qualified candidates. There was even an internal memo that was prepped for Pulitzer that outlined the ways in which Chapin got more perks and money and took more time off than any other employee. These were sort of talking points he could point out to Chapin if he made a lot of fuss about it. But that memo also acknowledged that Chapin was easily the most valuable asset that they had in the newsroom. Chapin continued to make his case, but eventually he kind of dropped it when he felt like he was just getting nowhere, and he also worried he might be risking Pulitzer getting annoyed by him. During the 1904 General Slocum disaster, in which a pleasure cruise chartered by St. Mark's Evangelical Lutheran Church went up in flames on the East River, killing almost 1,400 people, Chapin was there taking the relay and writing up the grisly details. The report was so bad that even the person who called in the tip became overwhelmed by the horrors he was seeing and hung up. The Evening World was the first paper to go to print with the story thanks to the telephone account. While there had been mixed feelings about Chapin's telephone system within the organization, the achievement of being first on such a big news story justified its use. Chapin's contract was renewed with a clause that he wouldn't go to work for any other paper for several years. Joseph Pulitzer's son, Joseph Jr., became a new project for Chapin at this point, and that was a project that did not go particularly well. The younger Pulitzer had been enrolled at Harvard, but he had not been bothering to go to class, so his father sent him to work in Chapin's newsroom, thinking that might be a valuable education. And he instructed Chapin to show no partiality to his son. He may or may not have regretted that later. Uh, Joe Jr. was sometimes late, something Chapin hated, and then on occasion he failed to show up at all. And for Chapin, these were fireable offenses normally. But because of who this employee was, he tried to talk sense into him. And the thing was, the younger Pulitzer was apparently a pretty naturally talented reporter. So Chapin also kind of wanted to encourage him because he did do that with young reporters. He would find them and kind of teach them the business. After many infractions, though, of the editor's rules, it was finally a week of unexplained absence that got Pulitzer's son fired. Pulitzer Sr. backed up Chapin on this decision. In a moment, we'll discuss Chapin's relationship with his great uncle after his return to New York, but first, we will pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice 
privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Chapin had, in his time back in New York, reconnected with his great-uncle, Russell Sage. We talked about him in part one. That reconnection had been a little bit tenuous, because in the wake of the attack on Sage's office that we mentioned in part one, one of Sage's employees, who had been seriously injured by that blast, had received no financial assistance from his employer, and he sued Sage over it. The article that Chapin had written after interviewing his great-uncle had described him as, quote, vigorous. This article was used against Sage in court because he had attempted to deflect the accusations against him by saying that he was in his own state of difficulty after the incident and that he was not aware of his employees' struggles. So Charles had avoided any discussion of the entire situation, and that had really deeply damaged Sage's reputation. He focused instead on just spending time with them whenever possible and endearing himself to the old man. Chapin recounted in his memoir that he took Russell for his first ride in an automobile, for example. Chapin believed that Sage was going to leave him a fortune when he died. Yeah, and allegedly Sage had hinted at as much. Russell Sage died on July 22, 1906. He was 90. All of New York wondered what was contained in his will, which was rumored to have been rewritten just a few years before his death. But no one was more expectant about its contents than Charlie Chapin. And rumors started to circulate that the wealthy financier had actually left all of his fortune to charity. Chapin was tense, and he actually had the death announcement of his great-uncle rewritten twice by one of his writers, first casting Sage as astute and completely in command of his faculties to his last breath, then as having been senile and of questionable mental acuity before then, going back to the more flattering version, which apparently had to be pulled out of a trash can. After several days of waiting, the contents of the will were revealed. And it was not what Chapin had hoped. Russell Sage had left almost everything to his wife. The exception was a few small bequeathments. His sister, who had died before him, was left $10,000. His nieces and nephews each got $25,000. That point was particularly painful for Chapin because his father, who had abandoned the family, was still alive and he got his inheritance Nothing was left to charity, although Mrs. Sage used her inheritance largely in service of others. When Chapin ran the story, he included that the relatives had been left out and that some were preparing to contest the will. According to the story Chapin ran, each relative had expected a million dollars. Of course, this is incredibly inappropriate by today's journalistic standards. Chapin was reporting his own desires, essentially, as though they were fact. 
Also, just in general, this was a story that he had a vested interest in himself that (laughs) he doesn't seem to have disclosed. This was just a widely read and influential paper for this to be playing out in. Earl arranged for his inheritance to be dispersed to Chapin's mother and siblings, but nothing to Charles. The logic was that he had a fancy, high-paying job and the rest of them needed money. And Chapin had money? He had been putting it away over the years, according to his account, although others thought he may have been paid off for various stories rather than accumulating his, his wealth slowly over time. But in the decade following his father's death, which happened very shortly after Russell Sage, Chapin started using that money to make investments in the hopes of growing his fortune so he could live the lavish life that he always dreamed of. In 1907, the Chapins had moved into the Plaza Hotel. They actually got to move in before it was even open. And Charles had acquired numerous high-priced luxuries, like a yacht and horses. He traveled in elite circles of wealth, and he wore custom-tailored clothes as he did. Then in 1909, during a turbulent time for the New York world, in which Pulitzer was in hot water with Theodore Roosevelt, the staff was reorganized. Chapin was put in charge of the morning paper with authority over all the other editions as needed. Chapin eliminated the day and night city editor positions and filled those spots with assistants who reported to him. He also shifted his favorite writers to salaried positions from freelance, and he hired a lot of new people. He hired established writers at what were considered very high rates of $70 to $80 a week. He also hired writers fresh out of school at very low rates to learn the trade and to be trained at the world. Chapin's status as temporary or permanent in the job was definitely something that seemed to be up in the air in discussions between him and Pulitzer, and there was definitely friction and resistance within the staff of the morning edition who were just not as eager to bend to Chapin's will as the evening edition staff had been. Nine months into the job, Chapin moved back to the evening world. In 1910, Chapin once again seemed to be standing where lightning metaphorically struck, at least in terms of news scoops. Mayor William J. Gaynor had recently been elected with the backing of Tammany Hall. And as part of coverage of the new mayor, Chapin had a reporter interview him just before he left on a European trip. And he sent a photographer named William Warnicky to photograph the mayor at the Hoboken Pier where he was to depart. Because of that random assignment, Warnicky and the Evening World got exclusive photos of Mayor Gaynor as he was shot by an angry city employee. Chapin is famously quoted as saying when he saw the photos, quote, look, blood all over him, and exclusive, too. Had Gaynor not survived that shooting, that would have been even more callous and grim than it was. Pulitzer died the following year, in 1911, on his yacht as it was anchored off the South Carolina coast. During the funeral, the world offices shut off all the presses and phones and observed a five-minute silence in the dark. Chapin later wrote that he felt that his spirit had been buried with Pulitzer. Even so, he continued in his role with the paper. When the Titanic sank, Chapin had, by random happenstance, known a reporter who was on board the Carpathia, which took on survivors of the Titanic tragedy. Carlos F. Hurd and his wife Kathleen spoke with the survivors, and they were able to assemble the first detailed account of what had happened on board the doomed ship. But the captain of the Carpathia forbid any telegraph communication from going out, and he also didn't want their rescued passengers to be bothered, so he issued an order that the herds were not to be given any paper so they couldn't write anything down. Still, they worked to document everything that unfolded on whatever scraps they could find. New York newsrooms at this point were running kind of on pure speculation because information had been limited to one associated press bulletin that was very thin on details. It mentioned that it had struck an iceberg, but basically nothing else. It had nothing about the face of anyone on board. And as the Carpathia returned to New York, papers actually sent out boats to meet them in the water to try to get this story. No wires were leaving the Carpathia, but a wire did go out to Carlos Hurd to tell him Chapin was coming to meet the boat. Hurd never actually got that wire, but he knew Chapin's reputation and correctly assumed that he was coming to meet him. To be safe, he bundled his 5,000-word story into waterproof canvas, 
and attached champagne corks to it so that if he had to throw it to Chapin and it hit the water, it wouldn't sink. Chapin's tug was racing a similar boat that was carrying reporters from Hearst's papers. Although there were a lot of close misses, Chapin did take possession of the story when it was flung overboard, marked it up for the typesetters while the tug made its way to the dock, so the world's extra edition covering the tragedy was being handed out to readers before the Carpathia even docked. No other reporters even had a chance to get a quote at that point. Heard was able to purchase a copy of his own story as he left the ship and headed into the city. Yeah, this is uh, that story of all of the newspapers trying to get out to the Carpathia is bananas. There are literally ships ramming each other as they try to get out there. Even when Heard had thrown his bundle overboard, it got caught on a wire, and one of the sailors went out to get it, and the Carpathia's captain is yelling at him to bring it back, and the passengers are yelling, no, throw it down, and he... The sailor threw it down to Chapin, and like the the ink was not even dry on the additions they were handing out there at the dock. It was like one of those like watershed moments in journalism for a lot of people because it uh, it was astonishing that it happened. So while Chapin's life was seemingly one success after another, he was spending the fruits of his labor far faster than they were coming in. His debt was mounting. Several of his investments had sunk, and he was losing money in the stock market. But he continued to live the life of a millionaire. And one of the things that he had done in all of this was take assets from the trust that was intended for the estate of his youngest sister, Edna. That was a daughter that his father had after he had started his second family. But at this point, Edna was almost 21. That was the age when her trust and its investments would be assessed and accounted for and handed over to her, and Chapin had no way to replace what he had taken. Additionally, creditors were coming after him. He had such good instincts for news, but none of that transferred over to finances. He had no instincts in that space. Chapin resolved to end his life. He put in a call to the police station where he had friends and said that he needed a revolver. He had no permit for one, but he was told to come down to the nearby police office where he would be set up with one. He and Nellie went to Washington via train. Charles came down with the flu on the way and was confined to bed once they arrived. He started to think about Nellie and what would happen to her if he was dead. She had no real support system and she wasn't in good health and he believed he would have to end both of their lives to spare her the misery of destitution without him to support her. She had no idea what their financial situation was. The night Chapin intended to do this, he had the revolver under his pillow as Nellie slept beside him. When he put his hand on the gun, though, he had a vision of his mother, young and beautiful, shaking her head at him, so he abandoned the plan, at least for a moment. As the following days played out, Chapin became increasingly paranoid. He believed he was being followed, and he finally, in a park, told Nellie all of their problems and about his intention to end his own life. He did not share with her that he had also planned to kill her. Nellie was surely shocked by this information, but she seems to have really kept quite a level head. She told her husband that he had probably magnified his troubles by keeping them to himself and letting them stew, and that they just needed to return to New York and meet with a lawyer friend and talk this whole thing through. And Chapin did just that. He also reached out to a friend in the tobacco industry for help who told him instantly he would do anything to get Chapin out of trouble. And the lawyer had advised him, like, just come clean, say you used money from that estate, and that you are going to pay it back. And so this tobacco friend basically enabled Charlie to replace the missing trust funds with a financial gift. And then he was able to wrap up his sibling Edna's trust and be free of it, which was a huge burden off of his back. And life, for a time, went back to normal. But several years later, and as the summer of 1918 came to an end, Chapin was once again in hot water financially. He had sold off a lot of his luxury items to try to stay afloat. He was still deeply in debt, and creditors were threatening to garnish his wages. He knew he would be fired once this story went public, and so once again he decided that he needed to end his life and Nellie's. In the early morning hours of September 16th, 1918, Charles shot Nellie as she slept. 
In addition to the note that he wrote Carlos Cites, which we read at the beginning of the first part of this, he wrote another to a friend, Harry Stimson, confessing what he had done, writing, quote, For a long time, I have been unable to sleep. My nerves are unstrung. I am tortured with pain. My wife died this morning. In a few minutes, I also shall be dead. After writing these letters, Chapin got dressed and put a do not disturb sign on the hotel door and left with his revolver in his pocket. He posted his letter to Sites and headed to Central Park when that's where he intended to take his own life, but he started having hallucinations. He saw hands reaching out to grab him and thought they were reaching into his pocket to take the gun. He kept wandering, eventually making his way to Brooklyn, although he wasn't totally aware of where he was. He had the gun pointed at himself when a policeman walked by him and he panicked and put the weapon back in his pocket. Then he headed for the subway. At one point as he rode the train, he described coming to the belief that he was already dead. And in the meantime, as he was having this walkabout around New York, his letter to Sites had been delivered. As a consequence, Nellie's body had been found. An alert was put out that Chapin was either dead or he was wandering the city armed and dangerous. When Chapin got off the train near his office in the morning, he bought a copy of the New York Times and he saw in its pages the headline, Wife of Editor Shot Dead in Bed. He read in that paper the very note that he had sent to Sites. And then after vacillating over whether to turn himself in or kill himself, Chapin went to the West 68th police station and demanded to see the captain. When it seemed that he was not going to be taken to the captain, he told the lieutenant at the desk, quote, I am Mr. Chapin of the New York Evening World, and I have just killed my wife. We'll get to the aftermath of this entire upsetting event after we take a break to hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When Chapin turned himself in, it was, unsurprisingly, very big news. But in the case of a man who had been the scourge of so many of New York City's journalists, it was kind of a heyday. Hearst's papers were eager to run the story as fast as they could. And in the case of the New York Evening Journal, they ran the story of Chapin's confession right next to the story that police were still looking for Chapin because they didn't take the time to remove the first one. In his statement to police, Chapin continued to insist that he had killed Nellie because he wanted to save her from a pauper's life insisting, quote, I idolized my wife. She was the only thing I lived for. She was my life, my religion, and the only thing I lived for. Chapin confessed everything, all the money he had borrowed, his overdrawn accounts, his attempts to hide his financial ruin, and his decision to end everything. The paper sent their lawyer to represent him. Chapin asked the district attorney if he could attend Nellie's funeral and offered to waive his right to a trial and to go directly to the execution. That offer was not accepted. He would make that request repeatedly in the days before Nellie was buried, but he was denied every time. In his cell, Chapin asked to see the papers, and he read all of the coverage of his crime and declined all interview requests. Meanwhile, reporters were trying to piece together Chapin's last days and figure out just how bad his financial situation was. There were even requests posted in the papers that his creditors should contact reporters because Chapin had destroyed most of his personal papers so they had nothing to go on. Interestingly enough, no creditors ever came forward to reporters. Chapin's legal team insisted that their client was not in his right mind and was in no state to stand trial. This claim was supported by the fact that Chapin continually said he wanted to go to the electric chair. He insisted that he was perfectly sane and that he didn't want a sanity commission. One was assigned, though, in mid-October. Papers around the country ran the findings of the commission on December 17th. Quote, Charles E. Chapin, former city editor of the New York Evening World, who confessed to having shot and killed his wife at the Hotel Cumberland September 16th, has been found legally sane, according to the report of a lunacy commission filed today. His trial was set to begin on January 20th of 1919. Chapin, however, consented to a plea deal, which was submitted on January 14th. He confessed to the murder and was sentenced to prison and hard labor for a minimum of 20 years and a maximum of his natural life. The press had been anticipating a trial and all of the stories that it would generate, but Chapin had cut them off one last time. When Chapin was recorded as an incoming inmate at Ossining Correctional Facility, known even then as Sing Sing, which is its name today, he was listed as a widower. His prison term started two days after he had received his sentence, and he was 60 years old. Chapin's prison time was vastly different from other Sing Sing inmates. He and the warden, Lewis Laws, had become fast friends when Chapin began his incarceration. And as a consequence, over time, Charles was allowed to kind of do more or less as he pleased within the walls of the prison. He had been assigned to the prison library as his job rather than actual hard labor, and he was given a pension from the paper, which enabled him to purchase things in the prison store. 
On the suggestion of a friend, he started writing his autobiography. That book, Charles Chapin's Story, written in Sing Sing Prison, was published in 1920. He also became the editor of the prison newspaper, and for that job, he got an office. A colleague who once visited him noted that that was a nicer office than the one he had had at the New York World. The move into the paper's office reinvigorated Chapin. From the years before he murdered Nellie up through his arrest and sentencing, he'd been in sort of a torpor, but being back in the business of editing a paper, even just the Sing Sing Bulletin, brought out some of Chapin's former energy. That meant he also wrote most of it because he found the writing of his fellow inmates was not up to his standards. The paper lasted less than a year and a half before it was shut down by the state superintendent, but Chapin was allowed to keep the office. Chapin found pen pal romance in prison, twice. The first of his prison romances was with a woman named Viola Irene Cooper. She had written him first, wanting to learn more about him, and he had responded with a startling level of vulnerability, writing, quote, I am more lonely than any person you may know. So lonely that I am even now reaching out my arm to clasp your hand, hoping you will let me hold it in mine for just a little while. Chapin sent Cooper, who was 24, his book, although he feared that once she read it, she would lose interest in him, but she did not. She saw him, in her own word, as an Olympian of writing, which was her chosen profession as well. The two traded letters, and they built dreams of living together in a cabin in the woods. Viola came to visit him numerous times, but it didn't last. Their relationship ended when Viola, still young and still very much seeking adventure, set sail for Fiji aboard the windjammer Bougainvillea. The second woman Chapin had a pen pal romance with was Constance R. Nelson, who worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. She had reached out to him after reading his autobiography. She asked him to help with editing stories about banking. As with Cooper, Chapin quickly took a familiar and romantic tone with Constance, and before long, the two of them were trading their favorite novels, he was putting her photo across from him at dinner, and writing her passionate love letters. Nelson first visited him in June of 1924, and this was the first of many visits. Constance was greeted by the warden for lunch, almost as if she was visiting family, and she and Chapin had time together in the morning and the afternoon. Constance also made a point to reach out to Charles's family and even to visit Nellie's grave and put flowers there. Yeah, she really seemed fairly committed to this whole idea that she wanted to be in his life. Perhaps the most surprising thing that Chapin did at Sing Sing was gardening. The prison yard at Sing Sing was large. It's been described as about the same area of two football fields. And for a long time, it was very empty. There was a small garden at one point near one of the buildings, but that was it. And when Chapin had seemed extremely sullen one day, the prison chaplain, who he had become friends with, had suggested he try digging a little garden to get some fresh air and possibly feel a little better. Chapin told him he wasn't interested, but Father Cashin brought him gardening tools anyway, and Chapin grudgingly used them, only to discover he really enjoyed gardening and found it therapeutic. Soon, he asked the warden if he could be assigned to care for the prison's lawns. And before long, Chapin was drawing up designs to fill the empty, barren space of the prison yard. When a local nursery discovered that he was trying to expand the prison's green space, they sent a truckload of plants. Soon, Chapin was reaching out to other people who might be able to donate bulbs, seedlings, and supplies. Horticulturalists shared Chapin's needs and wish lists among their various groups and friend circles, and they eventually created a network of donators. In 1923, Chapin's design for the prison yard to be transformed into a rose garden was published by the American Rose Society in their annual. There was a call with that for plant donations. Chapin's efforts had so successfully transformed the prison that the warden arranged for a greenhouse to be built as winter approached that year. Chapin called it the Rosary and started taking his meals there. One of the really interesting details of Chapin's makeover of the prison grounds was the thoughtful way that the landscaping had been planned as it led to what was called the Death House. That was the area of the facility where executions were carried out. And Chapin had designed this space so that year-round, a condemned man's last view of the world outside that building would be filled with beautiful flowers. 
1924, the gardens were coming together so nicely that they were photographed by House and Garden. Chapin was in the papers again, but this time only for his flowers. They had frequent visitors in the form of horticulture enthusiasts and reporters for gardening magazines. Chapin started to hope that all the positive publicity might help him gain a pardon so that he and Constance could start a life together. He had a lot of supporters who lobbied for this on his behalf. Chapin wrote during this time about how very much he had changed and pondered how gardening had been the key to that change. Quote, Roses respond to me when all else fails. Park Row would never recognize me. I don't even know myself, and to think I have changed in so short a time. Do you think that growing flowers did it? As his gardens had grown, people had started bringing him birds as well, which he kept in the greenhouse, and he started showing the birds to visitors with the same delight that he shared his gardens. By the time Chapin had been incarcerated for several years, he seemed to have gained a perspective on his persona within the New York news scene. When Irvin Cobb asked for a visit, the former editor initially refused, but then he acquiesced, and he wrote a letter to a friend about having done so. He wondered if Cobb was looking for a way to, quote, get even for the hard knocks he had when I was his boss. Yeah, he realized he was a jerk. Um, Whether or not he regretted any of that is another matter. Chapin's relationship with Constance Nelson went through some strain. Uh, Chapin's assistant in prison had been paroled, and that man turned to Constance for help figuring out kind of how to fit into the world outside. And she helped him out with money and with clothing, but when Charles heard about this, he assumed that there was something romantic between the two, and he became very angry and jealous. He later told Constance that jealousy was just part of passion, but they struggled to find their former closeness again, and Chapin replied less and less frequently to Constance's letters. In July of 1926, Chapin became very ill and was diagnosed with acute gastritis. His health declined rapidly. At the same time, the prison had become far too attractive to visitors who wanted to see the gardens, and the warden had to end the flower tours because there simply wasn't enough staff to watch the tourists and the residents, although occasionally journalists were still allowed to visit for stories. As Chapin approached his 70th birthday in late 1928, he seemed to have abandoned the idea of a pardon or parole. When a reporter asked him if he had thought about what would happen to his birds and flowers if he were to be released, Chapin told him, quote, I do not believe I would care to leave here if I could. He occasionally wrote letters to Constance, but they seemed more critical and chastising than conciliatory in nature. Yeah, he basically blamed her for their strains. Uh, When an unknowing contractor drove a steam shovel through Chapin's Rose Garden as part of a new drainage project for the prison in late 1930, it destroyed some of his work and it really devastated Chapin. He had been in poor health already with a stomach ailment, but this moment where he saw his garden destroyed seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to his spirit. His health degraded rapidly, although he refused to go to the prison hospital. And after several months of being confined to bed, visibly weakening, Chapin died on December 13, 1930, of bronchial pneumonia. His last words, which he spoke to the warden, were, quote, I want to die. I want to get it over with. Chapin had laid out his desires in a letter to the warden to be opened after his death. He didn't want a funeral service. He wanted the least expensive coffin possible. And most importantly, he wanted to be buried next to Nellie in Glenwood Cemetery. His body was shipped to Washington, D.C. in accordance with that wish, and that was accompanied by a wreath of roses that had come from his garden. (sighs) He's a wild ride. I have so many thoughts. I do, too, and most of them are not... No. ...not flattering in any way. (laughs) No. No, I... uh, We'll talk about all this in behind the scenes. That's for sure. Um... (laughs) I, uh, as a little bit of a balm for this strange story, I have a delightful listener mail, which is from our listener, Gina, who says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I just listened to your episode on the invention of the dishwasher, and I was tickled to hear the mention of Josephine Cochran's grandfather, John Fitch. As you mentioned, he was instrumental in the invention of the steam locomotive. Perhaps he deserves his own episode. 
I live in the town where he was born, and I also happen to live in the house where he was born. Or sort of, as the original house was torn down, my house was built in the 1950s. I have attached a photo of his memorial that lives in my front yard. It looks a lot like a tombstone, and we get plenty of double takes as people walk or drive by. My husband spruced it up a bit with some flowers and mulch, but I told him not to make it look too nice, because by all accounts, John Fitch was a deadbeat dad and not a very nice man. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for all of your hard work on the show. I was able to attend a live show pre-pandemic, and I feel so lucky to have been able to meet you two. Uh, Thank you so much for this note and this photo. Uh, It looks sprucey to me, so um, hopefully we will get to do live events again and see many more listeners, but we'll just see what the future holds. Uh, In the meantime, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at iheartradio.com you can also find us on social media as missed in history and if you haven't subscribed you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts stuff you missed in history class is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.